0: Theologian Willie James Jennings wrote, Give me storytellers, and I will rule the world. Give me storytellers, and I will rule the world. At face value, we might dismiss a statement like that as hyperbole or even ridiculous. I mean, after all, stories are just entertainment, right? I mean, even historical stories are at best suggestive, but deep down, We're able to be critical readers, aren't we? I mean, deep down, we all know what's right and what we believe and what's wrong. No storyteller is going to change my mind or your mind or lead us astray, right? Right, you know I'm setting us up for something. If we just dig one level deeper into that idea that, that story creates meaning, then we have to deal with the reality that our foundational values, the things that you and I automatically assume that our good, are beautiful, our noble, what is the goal of life, who is praiseworthy and who is despicable, those things we just know based on the stories we've been told. And I'm not just talking about bedtime stories or, or stories on the, the knee of a grandparent, all those, those stories are formative. I'm talking about the grand stories of our culture that come out in the shorter stories of film and music and pop culture and academia. Take TV commercials for example. Short stories designed to communicate who is important. What is normal behavior? and what success looks like with the lure that you can achieve success or being normal or being popular or being desirable if you just buy this product or this service. Corey and I, uh, Watch most of our TV lately on streaming service like Amazon Prime or Disney Plus or something like that. And when you watch Amazon Prime, you get commercials still. You're not commercial free, but it's the same commercials. Anyone have this experience, right? Like if I hear another noom weight loss thing again, like, what? Am I supposed to feel bad about myself? Anyway, so we've been watching uh, over the Christmas season, there was this one ad where it, it pans in on this gigantic house, and then it, the, the camera closes in through the front door or something, and then you're in the kitchen. And there's a man and a woman there And they're ambiguously good looking And and, uh, the woman says I got you something You know it's around Christmas time And it's like these two watches Like fancy watches You don't really see the watches It might be Fitbits or something I don't know what it is But like little watch things And then the guy's like I got you something too And then the camera follows them out To this beautiful driveway And there is a brand new truck And a brand new SUV And I'm not just trying to be neutral here I really can't remember what brands they were there you go, okay. They, uh, yeah. Someone else has seen this. Now, clearly they have no children because the kitchen was way too beautiful. But <laughs> And I think we're watching uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel when we kept seeing this, this show. Uh, or, yeah, and, and I'm wondering to myself, I'm just a regular guy watching Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, like, who's your target audience? Like, who's buying each other cars for Christmas? And isn't it weird that they both buy themselves a the gift when they're given to the other one? But that's just beside the point. But the, the, these short stories, I, I think, aren't really there to sell me a car In that moment. In fact, most people that I know, at least, that's not really an option for most people most of the time to be able to just buy new cars for each other. But subconsciously, it is telling me, ah, so that's what success would look like if I had it. And it tempts me to say, I'm not greedy enough to buy new cars for Christmas, even if I could. But gosh, if the standard is up there, well, maybe like a used car. If it's not Christmas, we don't want to mix it up with Jesus, but maybe I deserve a car. That sure would be nice. Corey would probably be happy. Probably not. That's just one commercial that is trying to communicate these deep values to us. Think of all the other storytellers that we're exposed to on a regular basis. Music, poetry, theater, film, biographies, they're never neutral friends, novels and podcasts and political speech. News editorials and paintings and fashion and sports talk radio, yes, even that. All mediums of story, written, created, spoken, passed on by storytellers. And every single one of them is shaping and forming what we believe is worthy of pursuit and what is not worthy of investing our lives in. And most of the conflict that we experience within ourselves and among like nations of the world is that of competing stories. Whose version of right and wrong are we buying into? Whose version of politics do we grab hold of as the story that is most attractive to us to live into? Whose definition of beauty and success or the good life are we going to follow? Most conflicts arise when the story we believe in is challenged by a rival story. So the story that Republicans want to tell is challenged by the story of the Democrats. And both of that, those two people in conflict, keep talk radio in in business and Saturday Night Live in business. And it's really great. We have actual scientific data about climate change, but conflict comes from those who are telling the story and their motive for telling the story. So what are the motivational differences behind what Jay Inslee might be saying about climate change? Or a young person like Greta Thunberg? Or a national leader who's financially backed by say a coal lobby or an oil lobby? What are are their motives for telling us the story that they're telling us? The stories we tell And the stories we are told absolutely affect the way that we live. And it's my belief that one story makes sense of all the others. And that, of course, is the story of God. From creation to new creation, the story of God gives us a meta-narrative, an overarching play in which we are invited to be actors and if you want to see real conflict, then just listen as a fly on the wall to disagreements about the biblical story. That's the world we are about to re-enter as we pick up where we left off last summer in the book of Acts. Jesus came as the fulfillment of the biblical story, and yet he didn't fit the version of the story that all the religious people were thinking of. The ones who claimed to be be most passionate and most invested in the story of God ended up calling for the death of Jesus, super ironically, who was God himself. And when Jesus was resurrected and the Holy Spirit was gifted to the followers of Christ, they began to tell how Jesus fulfilled the promises of the prophets and how he's calling all the world to, to follow him and becoming part of his people, the church. And earlier, Anne read from Acts chapter 6, in which we saw Stephen, an early follower of Jesus, being falsely accused of two things. They drummed up false witnesses, and they accused him of two things. The first thing was speaking against the importance of the temple. And the second thing was speaking against the law of Moses, the story that the people claimed to hold so dearly. In Acts chapter 7, that's our text in this moment, Stephen presents his defense by not denying the story of God, but by emphasizing points in the story that the religious leaders weren't emphasizing at the time. And he shows how Jesus is telling a better story i want to introduce some friends of ours who are going to help me because this is a long chapter and you don't want to just hear me read it. So we have tonight, we have Emma Wilson and we have David Thomas and we have Caleb and Noah Epps are going to take turns reading different parts for us. And um, it's at this point I want to invite um, our first reader forward, Caleb, uh, who's going to read Acts chapter 7 verses 2 through 8. Come on up, Caleb. You can just use this mic right here.
1: To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to the land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, and even though at that time Abraham had no child, God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated, but I will punish the nation um, they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs.
0: So Stephen's on trial for speaking against the temple and speaking against the law of Moses. And the Sanhedrin are the ones who are overseeing this. So these are high-ranking Jewish officials. Some are priests. Some are just noble people. Some are biblical scholars. And they're there trying to accuse Stephen of these things. And so he begins with respect. He, he refers to his accusers as brothers and fathers. And in so doing, he communicates that he does not view himself or the Jesus way as a rebel or a radical movement, trying to leave the mainstream of faith. He's trying to share what he's learned about the story that they both hold so dear. Now, wisely, Stephen starts with common ground. No one in the Sanhedrin, that Jewish court, could deny that Abraham and the patriarchs were the foundation of the Jewish people. So on the surface, we might ask, what is Stephen's point? Why would he recite the Bible to Bible scholars and priests and part of the biblical story that these guys probably had memorized since they were 13 years old at their bar mitzvah. See, Stephen might be saying the same words that they were familiar with, but he's emphasizing different parts of the story. The religious leaders and the popular movement of the day looked at Abraham as their father, and they kept a strict Record of the genealogy so that people could trace their heritage back to Abraham. It was a sort of status symbol if you could connect yourself to the patriarchs. And, And Stephen points out that Abraham is called in his life to go to the promised land, but he's called from where? He's called from the east. He's called from Ur and Haran. He's called from the places where non-Jewish people are from, where people worship other gods and goddesses. The God of Israel, Stephen is implying, is a missionary God, and he's not tied to the land. He doesn't only act in Israel. He started this whole Israel thing in the east and grabbed Abraham out of that land. God's call upon Abraham anticipates his mission for Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, to the world. Abraham isn't just part of the story to produce a bloodline or a DNA for a specific group of chosen people. He's part of the story because God rewrote the ending to his story. Abraham's life his story is informed by the pagan world where he had come from totally ignorant of God until that moment when God reached out to him so that the descendants of Abraham could be part of this new story and that that is the new story of God reaching out to bless the nations. So Stephen roots his case On the pillar of Abraham because that's what the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and rabbis often did in their own arguments. But whereas they looked back to Abraham as an anchor for tradition, Stephen says that uh, Abraham is God's catalytic agent to redeem the world. Stephen is implying that he's on trial for carrying out the mission of Abraham just like Jesus was on the mission to fulfill Abraham. Well, Emma, would you come forward, please, and read Acts 7, 9 through 34.
2: Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then, a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, "'I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.' Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, "'Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free.' Now come, I will send you back to Egypt.
0: So now Stevens turned his attention from Abraham and these patriarchs to Joseph and to Moses. Joseph, we know, had this prophetic dream about the work of God in his life and his family, the people of God. But his brothers rejected their prophetic brother and sold him into slavery. Now, it could be argued that he was a bit of a punk about how he communicated the dream, but nonetheless, he was a rejected prophet among his family. And where did God reach out to Joseph once he was sold into slavery? Not in the promised land, but in Egypt. The missionary God is faithful to his covenant. He would take what Joseph's brothers meant for harm and turn it into good. It was God who worked through the rejected prophet Joseph and the wealth of the pagan Egypt to rescue his people, Israel, from death and to keep the covenant alive. After Joseph, Egypt turned from a place of blessing into an oppressive force, into a slave master. And so God sent Moses. And like Jesus, Moses had to be hidden from a maniacal king as an infant in order to escape death. Moses tried to rescue one of his own Hebrew brothers, but it it turned out that his, his own people turned on him and rejected him. Um, echoing John chapter one, where Jesus comes to his own, but his own did not receive him. So Moses is rejected by his own people, whom he uh, sees himself as a savior of. After being exiled from both Egypt and his own people who were slaves in Egypt, Moses settles in the distant land of Midian, where he marries into a foreign family. His father-in-law is literally a pagan priest to other gods and goddesses. And one can only imagine that after 40 years of being a son-in-law there and marrying this woman and and serving her father, the pagan priest, that, that Moses has picked up some of these customs and some of these ways of worship. Moses, if you had met him at that time and you were an Israelite, you might think this guy's a lost cause. But to God forsake Moses because he wasn't in the right land or with the right people? no. Did he wait for Moses to become theologically orthodox or to meet God in the right spot or in a holy enough building? No. While shepherding his flock, actually the flock of his pagan father in law, far from the promised land, God appears to Moses in a burning bush and calls this lost man far from home and far from God to re enter the story of God's redemption. Yahweh invites Moses. To live into a better story than he'd been living in. Now, Stephen is not just recounting history to the religious leaders of Israel. He's saying, look, you have a habit of rejecting the prophets and leaders that God sends your way. Like it's not just in the first century with Jesus and me. You've done this to the prophets, to Joseph, to Moses. Our ancestors rejected all of these people. You're already crucified. You've already crucified the Son of God, and now I am on trial also for telling you a better story. It's a story of God's redemption through his Messiah, Jesus. And I think Stephen is saying, I am not rejecting or denying the law of Moses. I'm telling you the good news that Jesus, whom I serve, has fulfilled the law and the prophets. David, would you come and read Acts 7, 35 through 43?
3: Then the Lord said to him, no wait, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made but God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the Book of the Prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, these idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon.
0: Signs and wonders. God performed signs and wonders through Moses when he confronted Pharaoh. Jesus performed signs and wonders indicating that the kingdom of God had come near. Jesus healed the sick and the blind, the deaf, and those who were oppressed by evil spirits. And in the power of the Spirit, Stephen performed signs and wonders, just like Moses. Stephen is saying in so many words, God sent Moses... Who you so revere, and yet our ancestors, who you also revere, didn't listen to him. Our ancestors disobeyed and worshiped other gods and goddesses. And now your ears are plugged to the words of Moses when he said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. I think Stephen continues in his implication I've been telling you that Jesus is the one Moses spoke of, and you killed him. Now I am on trial for what? For doing signs and wonders? For caring for the poor? For proclaiming the good news that God has come among us, that he sent his Christ, that he's worthy of worship? Stephen was on trial because he was telling a different story from the same book. A story that challenged the dominant story of Israel and the myriad competing stories of Rome. Noah, would you take us home, uh, Acts 7, 44 through 53.
4: Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them, and they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for God of for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for, for him. However, the most high does not live in the houses and houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? the lo- says the Lord, or will or where will be where will be Sorry, or where will my resting place be? He, uh, he, has not made has not my hand made all these things. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You have just like your ancestors. You're just like your ancestors. You you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming. Of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the, you have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Thanks.
0: So now Stephen turns to the temple. He's been defending himself against the charge that he denies the law of Moses or the importance of Moses, and now he's talking about the temple. And he's saying that God's presence isn't limited to one place, to one physical particular place. God told Moses to build the tabernacle, but he was never trapped in the tabernacle. The tabernacle and the temple were places one could gather and worship the living God. They were temporary until the age, or until the end of the age. But in Christ, that new age has begun. So Stephen isn't anti temple. God gave the command to build the tabernacle and he allowed the construction of Solomon's temple. The temple served its purpose, but Jesus, in him we have God tabernacling among us. Stephen is not anti-temple. He is anti-limitations to holy space in the light that God has made his followers the new temple. He sees that Rather than accepting this new reality, rather than believing that God's story has left the building, so to speak, the religious leaders were idolizing the temple made with human hands, just like they idolized Molech in the desert by creating idols made with human hands. The story Stephen was trying to tell fell not upon deaf ears necessarily, but upon hard hearts and made up minds. And this was the response that we read about as we finish the chapter. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I've seen the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and they gnashed their teeth and they rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, "'Lord, do not hold this sin against them.'" And having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Stephen has a vision in which he sees Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Normally, we hear in the scripture of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, which indicates his place ruling over heaven and earth. But when the sovereign stands, it's likely a physical act of receiving the one who's on trial. Jesus is siding with Stephen. He's vindicating him. And the leaders can't handle it. They, they cover their ears of, because of the apparent blasphemy. And even though Rome had taken away the right of the Jewish people to have capital punishment, mob justice took over and they sent him out of the city and they began to crush him. With stones. In this moment, Stephen asks for the Lord to receive his spirit. And in a loud cry, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he died. Sound familiar? When Jesus was crucified, unrighteously, falsely accused. He cries out to his father. And asks that the father forgive the ones doing this to him. And when Stephen is being stoned, he asks not the father, but Jesus directly to forgive his executioners. You know, normally when a Jewish criminal received the death penalty, whatever they had done was so egregious that that was the case. And and, and oftentimes what would happen is that death would be their atonement. And a lot of rabbis taught that if you had capital punishment, that your death would pay for your sin. But you had to repent in that moment upon being executed. You had to confess your sin to people. And I find it fascinating that when Stephen is receiving this execution, this death sentence, he cheekily, I think honestly too, asks God to forgive them, not him. And it's at this point in the story that we realize Stephen is not merely telling an alternative story with his own alternative interpretation of Scripture. He's telling a better story with his life. Jesus had gripped his heart and changed his life. So much so that he's willing to give his life in faith for Jesus. He's the author of life, the sustainer of life, the savior of life and in and through him, he gives all people new life and Stephen had discovered that and it has changed him from the inside out. Stephen was a man who was freed by the biblical story that Jesus invited him into. Stephen was a foreigner who found a new family to belong to in the church. He was a man who found forgiveness in Jesus and new life in the spirit. Stephen was a man who was so impacted by Jesus that he began living like Jesus and ended up dying a lot like Jesus. And he was apparently a younger man. It it seems like the waste of a good life. And yet I've been preaching about it for over a half an hour now. And I know I'm about ready to wrap up. I know it's And also somewhere in the back of this crowd, holding the coats of the people stoning him, is this young man. The word there for for Saul's age is like, it could be an older boy or a young man. Think late teens. Saul is there. And in this moment, he's approving of Stephen's death. But later, when Jesus has transformed Saul into Paul, We know that Stephen's witness deeply touched Paul's life at that moment for the better. And this passage, I think, raises two questions for you and I to consider. First, of course, what story am I following? Where am I, where are you, where do we truly get our direction from? Is it the competing stories of popular culture or some myth of the American dream? Is the story I'm following leading me to fear and to anxiety, and to insecurity, and the feeling of being lost? If it is, then that's not the story that Jesus is telling. Here is his call. No matter who you are, no matter where you are in your life, he says, come. He says, come and join the story I'm writing, and you'll find yourself more alive than you've ever found yourself. Second, if you've accepted the uh, invitation of Jesus to join his story, then ask yourself, what story is my life communicating? What story does my life communicate to other people? Does your life tell a better story than the competing noise all around us? Would someone look at your life and say, that person has been with Jesus That person who is flawed and yet humble, that's a person who has issues, yes, but still carries themselves as though they have an important place in the world. That's a person who serves others and goes out of their own way to make their community healthier. Stephen's story is intended to be an invitation for us to join in. And wherever you're at, That can be your starting point. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your servant, Stephen. Thank you for transforming his life, but also thank you for his faithfulness. Thank you for preserving his story. Lord, I pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to wrestle with these questions that Stephen's life presents to us. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice. Help us to see the narrative that you're inviting us into. Help us to thrive, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you cast out fear from taking next steps to the things that we know you're asking us to do. Lord, help our lives to tell a better story than what's around us.